Hey, everybody out there in podcast land, this is Chris, the public safety guru, a.k.a. the EMT tutor, bringing you this exciting announcement. I have revamped memberships, and you can now access exclusive content, which includes quizzes, practice tests, block exams, practice final exams, study guides, and other resources for the low cost of $4.99 a month. And when you're done with your EMT program or taking the National Registry exam, you can cancel. Now, you can join from your favorite podcast app, but it's best if you do it from Spotify or our Patreon channel. If you join from your podcast app, all you need to do is send me an email to thepublicsafetyguru at gmail.com letting me know that you signed up. But if you do it from Patreon, I get instant notification, which grants you instant access to our Google Drive, which has all of these resources, including the ad-free version of this podcast. But wait, here is the most exciting part. When you subscribe, you get access to our all-new Discord channel, which allows you to have interaction with me, where you can ask me specific questions as it relates to your EMT program or prepping for the National Registry exam. But let's just say you just have that question where you're not understanding something. Well, we can answer that question through Discord, and that's what I'm really excited about. And last, you can interact with this EMT community and help each other. All right, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the EMT Tutor, and I almost forgot, if you're looking for us at Patreon, search for the EMT Tutor. All right, let's get on with your learning. All right, let's jump into this lecture and let's talk about the human body and what you should know and understand after this lecture. As with other lectures in this podcast, we're going to identify the knowledge domains, which is the information you should know for testing as well as national registry testing. For this lecture, the knowledge domains are one, topography of the human body, anatomy, planes of the body, anatomy and physiology of the skeletal system, the musculoskeletal system, the respiratory system, the circulatory system, the nervous system, the integumentary system, which is our skin, the digestive system, the lymphatic system, the endocrine system, the urinary system, and the genital system. We're also going to talk about the life support chain, anaerobic metabolism, anaerobic metabolism, and pathophysiology. All right, let's get to this. Topography. What is topography? Topography applies to the human body in the anatomic position. The anatomic position is when someone is standing, facing you, arms at their side, with their palms facing forward. Body planes are imaginary lines which divide the body into planes, aka areas. Your first body plane is the frontal plane. This divides the body from front to back. This is considered the coronal plane as well. Then we have the transverse plane. This divides the body from top and bottom. And this is also considered the axial plane. We also have the sagittal plane, which divides the body from left and right. And this is also considered the lateral plane. All right, let's talk about some anatomy and physiology of the skeletal system. First, we're going to break down the physiology of the skeletal system. The skeletal system provides form and shape of the body. 
It protects the organs, allows for movement, stores calcium, and creates blood cells. Now we're going to break down the anatomy of the skeletal system. The skeletal system is what gives us form and protects vital organs. There are 206 bones which make up the human skeleton. Ligaments connect bone to bone, while tendons connect muscles to bone. Cartilage is a smooth connective tissue which covers the ends of the bones at mobile joints. Our skeleton is divided into two portions, the axial skeleton, which is considered the main structure, and the appendicular skeleton, which are our limbs. Now let's break down the structures of the axial skeleton. First, we're going to talk about the skull. The skull consists of four lobes, which are the frontal lobe, the temporal lobes, the parietal lobes, and the occipital lobe. Next will come our facial bones. There's 14 bones that make up our facial bones. We have our upper jaw bone, which is called the maxillae. Then we have our lower jaw bone, which is the mandible. And then we have our cheekbones, which are called zygomas. And that is spelled Z-Y-G-O-M-A-S. Then we have our orbits, which are our eye sockets. And then we have the bones of the nose. Now let's talk about the spinal column, which is the supporting structure of the body, and this is divided into five sections. The first section is the cervical spine, which have seven vertebrae, followed by the thoracic spine, which have 12 vertebrae, and each one of those has a pair of ribs attached. Next is the lumbar spine, consisting of five vertebrae, and then the sacrum, which is also five vertebrae, but these are fused, then the coccyx, which have four fused vertebrae as well. One of the best ways to remember how many cervical, thoracic, and lumbar vertebrae there are is we have breakfast at 7, lunch at 12, and dinner at 5. Now we're going to talk about the structures of the appendicular skeleton, which are the arms, legs, pelvis, and connection points. Joints. Joints occur where bones meet one another. There are two types of joints. The first one is the ball and socket, which allow rotation and bending, and you can find the ball and socket in your shoulder. The next type of joint would be a hinge joint. This allows only for flexion and extension, so think your elbow. Now, as far as the upper extremities, this begins, or I should say extends from the shoulder girdle to the fingertips. It's composed of your arm, forearm, hands, and fingers. Your shoulder girdle consists of three bones. It is the clavicle, which is otherwise called the collarbone, the scapula, which is the shoulder blade, and the humerus, which is your arm bone. Now to break down your arm even more specifically, we have your humerus, which is your supporting bone, followed by your forearm, which consists of the radius and ulna bones. Your radius lies on the thumb lateral side, while the ulna is on the little finger medial side. And then we have your wrist and hand. And your wrist and hand is basically a modified ball and socket, which also consists of five metacarpals, which extend from the carpal bones. And then your fingers are phalanges. Pelvis. Your pelvis consists of three bones, the sacrum and two pelvic bones. The pelvic bone is the fusion of the ilium, the ischium, and the pubis. Lower extremities. This will be your femur 
or otherwise your thigh. The femoral head is where the femur connects into the diacetabulum, forming a ball and socket joint. Knee. Connects the upper leg to the lower leg. This is a hinge joint. The kneecap is also referred to as the patella. Lower leg. Tibia. Shins. Fibula. Small leg bone. In my class, I always remind my student the best way to remember which bone is the big bone in the lower leg is think fibula. It's fibbing to be the bigger bone. And it's in reality the small leg bone. Ankle. The ankle is a hinge joint and allows flexion and extension of the foot. Foot. The foot contains seven tarsal bones, five metatarsal bones from the substance of the foot, and then the five toes are formed by 14 phalanges. We're now going to be moving on to the anatomy and physiology of the musculoskeletal system. Physiology of the musculoskeletal system. First, contraction and relaxation allow for movement. The byproduct is heat. Another function is the protection of structures underneath the muscles. Now, the musculoskeletal system allows form. It allows us to have an upright posture, gives us the ability for movement, and protects vital organs. Anatomy of the musculoskeletal system. There are three types of muscles. Skeletal. Attaches to bones and forms the major muscle mass of the body. Now there are voluntary muscles which can be controlled and then there are involuntary. Movement is caused by contraction and relaxation of the muscles. Next we have smooth. These are found in the blood vessels and the intestines. And then the last is cardiac muscle which is only found in our heart. Anatomy and physiology of the respiratory system. Physiology of the respiratory system. The main function of the respiratory system is to bring in oxygen and remove carbon dioxide. This process is done through ventilation and respiration. Respiration is the actual exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide in the alveoli. This exchange is done through a process known as diffusion. Diffusion is a process in which molecules move from a higher level of concentration to a lower level. The brainstem controls breathing based on the level of carbon dioxide in the arterial blood. This level can be high or low. Finally, if the medulla senses CO2 levels are high, ventilation will be initiated. Ventilation is a process of moving air in and out of the lungs. Unfortunately, there are some terms we need to discuss which focus on ventilation. Tidal volume. Tidal volume is the amount of air which moves in and out of the lungs with each breath. Residual volume. Residual volume is the air which remains in the lungs to keep the lungs open. Minute volume. Minute volume is the amount of air which moves in and out of the lungs in one minute minus the dead space. Now, there's a formula you just need to remember, and that formula is minute volume. Minute volume equals respiratory rate times tidal volume. If you were going to write this down on a 3x5 card, I would write minute volume equals RR times TV. While this lecture does not have any associated skills, as an instructor, I will tell you this. Learn what normal breathing is, practice this skill because if you know what normal looks like, then abnormal will always stick out. Normal breathing consists of a normal 
rate, regular rhythm, good chest rise and fall with clear bilateral lung sounds. Anatomy of the respiratory system. As an EMT, you should be able to tell someone what the structures are of the upper airway and where the airway, or I should say, where the upper airway meets the lower airway and what structure divides the two of those airways. Now the structures of the upper airway consist of the nose, mouth, tongue, jaw, and larynx. The larynx is the dividing line between the upper and lower airway. Structures of the lower airway. The larynx, the pharynx, which can be broken into three structures, which are the nasal pharynx, the oral pharynx, which is the throat, and the laryngeal pharynx. Next, we have the trachea, which is located at the bottom of the pharynx, followed by the epiglottis, which is tissue which prevents food and liquid from entering the trachea, and then the esophagus, which is posterior to the trachea. We're going to talk about some cartilage of the throat now. The first cartilage is the thyroid cartilage, which is at the anterior part of the larynx. Then we have the cricoid cartilage, which lies beneath the thyroid cartilage. And then we have the cricothyroid membrane, which lies between the thyroid and the cricoid cartilage. Then there's the trachea, which lies below the cricoid cartilage. It ends at the carina, and the trachea divides into the right and left main stem bronchi. Now let's talk about the lungs. The lungs, of course, have two lobes, which are the left and right. Within the lobes are the bronchi and bronchioles, which end in sacs known as the alveoli. Alveoli is where there is the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. The left lung has two lobes, while the right lung has three lobes. The reason why the left lung has two lobes is it has to accommodate the size of the heart. Muscles of breathing. Diaphragm. The diaphragm is the primary muscle of breathing and it divides the thorax from the abdomen. Intercostal muscles. Intercostal muscles lie between the ribs and assist with the expansion of the chest. Believe it or not, we also have neck muscles, which are cervical muscles, which also aid in breathing, as well as abdominal muscles and pectoral muscles. Now we're gonna talk about the physiology of inhalation. The diaphragm and intercostal muscles contract, the ribs move in and out, Chest cavity becomes enlarged, decreasing the pressure in the lungs, and air moves in. Let's talk about that one more time. This is inhalation. This is when we breathe in. When we breathe in, the diaphragm and intercostal muscles will contract. Our ribs will move in and out, giving us that ability to take in as much air as we possibly can or need. The chest cavity becomes enlarged, decreasing the pressure in the lungs, which forces air in. Now let's talk about the physiology of exhalation when we breathe out. When we exhale, the diaphragm and intercostal muscles will relax. The chest cavity will decrease, increasing the pressure in the lungs and the air moves out. Earlier we discussed what normal breathing looks like. With that, Abnormal or inadequate breathing can be labored with the patient using accessory muscles to include the intercostal and clavicle muscles. The patient could present with pale or cyanotic skin as well as being cool and moist. Dependent on the level of distress, the patient could be in a tripod position 
or be at the point the respirations have been reduced to agonal or completely absent. The anatomy and physiology of the circulatory system. Physiology of the circulatory system. The main function of the circulatory system is to move blood throughout the body, which allows the body to receive nutrients, oxygen, and other vital nutrients while removing CO2 and waste products. There are some key terms that we need to discuss. Blood pressure. This is the pressure blood exerts against the arterial walls. Now there is the systolic and diastolic. Systolic is the top number of a blood pressure. Systole takes place when the left ventricle contracts and blood is pumped into the aorta from the ventricle. One more time. Systole takes place when the left ventricle contracts and blood is pumped into the aorta from the ventricle. Now diastolic is the bottom number of the blood pressure and diastole occurs when the ventricles relax and the ventricles fill with blood. Another term is perfusion. Perfusion is circulation of the blood through the organs and tissues to meet the demands of the body. Blood enters the organs and tissues through the arteries and leaves through the veins. This is something that you need to remember. Blood enters the organs and tissues through the arteries and leaves through the veins. Now there are some signs of inadequate circulation or otherwise perfusion. That's vessels will constrict, the patient will become tachycardic, and then shock will take place when the body is no longer able to compensate. Five functions of the blood. The five functions of the blood include perfusion, transport oxygen, transport CO2, transport waste and nutrients, and clotting. Have you ever wondered what your blood is made up of? Well, you're about to learn. The composition of blood. There are red blood cells, and these are erythrocytes, and they contain hemoglobin, which carries oxygen. We also have white blood cells, which are leukocytes, and these fight infection and disease. And then your blood has platelets, which are used for clotting, and then plasma, and this is the liquid portion of your blood. The main component is water, and there are proteins, oxygen, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, nutrients, and cellular waste. But for testing purposes, the four components of your blood are red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, and plasma. Now let's talk about the anatomy of the circulatory system. I want you to think of the circulatory system as basically an engine, pipes, and fuel. This equates to the engine being the heart, the pipes are the blood vessels and the arteries, and the fuel is the blood. Now the way blood flows through the body is it goes through arteries, which then go into smaller structures known as arterioles, and then into smaller structures called capillaries. And then when the blood needs to leave, those capillaries carry blood through the venules and then subsequently into the veins. Now as far as our circulatory system, there are two circulations of this system. We have systemic circulation and pulmonary circulation. Systemic circulation carries oxygenated blood from the left ventricle through the body and back to the right atrium. Pulmonary circulation carries deoxygenated blood from the right ventricle through the lungs and back to the left atrium. Let's talk about the heart now, which is made up of cardiac muscle, otherwise known as the myocardium. The heart works as two paired pumps. 
It's divided into two sides with each side containing an atrium and ventricle. It receives its blood supply from the aorta. The right side of the heart receives deoxygenated blood from the veins. Oxygenated blood returns from the lungs through the pulmonary vein into the left side of the heart and is pumped into the aorta and to the arteries. The average or normal pulse for an adult is 60 to 100 beats per minute. Now once again, we're going to talk about some key terms and some information you just need to memorize. Will you use it? Probably not, but you need to memorize it for testing purposes. We're going to first talk about stroke volume, otherwise known as SV. Stroke volume is the amount of blood moved by one heartbeat. The next term is cardiac output, otherwise known as CO. This is the amount of blood moved in one minute. Now you're going to be asked what the formula is for cardiac output. That formula is cardiac output is equal to the heart rate times stroke volume. If this was on a three by five card, this would be CO equals HR times SV. Electrical output of the heart's pacemakers. The heart's heart rate is controlled by specialized tissue that is capable of conducting electrical signals known as pacemakers. These pacemakers start at the top of the heart and begin with the sinoatrial node, otherwise known as the SA node. Then that electrical impulse heads to the atrioventricular node, otherwise known as the AV node, then to the bundle of His, finally to the Bikinji fibers. The vessels of the circulatory system. Arteries. Arteries carry oxygenated blood from the heart to body tissues. Aorta. The aorta is the main artery leaving the left side of the heart, and it has several branches. Pulmonary artery. It originates at the right ventricle and carries deoxygenated blood to the lungs. Capillaries. Tiny blood vessels which connect arterioles to venules. Oxygen and nutrients pass from blood cells and plasma in the capillaries to individual cells through the thin walls of the capillaries. Veins. Returns deoxygenated blood to the heart. Supervena cava. The supervena cava carries blood returning from the head, neck, shoulders, and upper extremities. The inferior vena cava. This structure carries blood from the abdomen, pelvis, and lower extremities. While you may not think of the spleen as part of the circulatory system, it is because it assists the circulatory system. The spleen is a specialized organ, it is solid, and it is susceptible to injury from blunt trauma. Its job is to filter used blood cells, filter out foreign substances and bacteria. The anatomy and physiology of the nervous system. The nervous system is divided into two systems, the central nervous system, CNS, and the peripheral nervous system, PNS. The central nervous system consists of the brain and the spinal cord. The brain and spinal cord are cushioned in their structures by cerebral spinal fluid, CSF. Let's break apart the brain. The brain consists of three structures. The first one is the cerebrum, which is the largest part of the brain, and it's made up of four lobes, and those lobes are responsible for hearing, speech, balance, and a host of other activities. Then we have the cerebellum, which coordinates body movement, followed by the brainstem. 
The brainstem is the center of life and controls all basic life functions, such as your cardiac, respiratory, and consciousness. Next, we have the spinal cord, and this extends from the brain, and the spinal cord is responsible for transmitting signals to and from the brain. Okay, now we're gonna talk about the peripheral nervous system, and the peripheral nervous system links the central nervous system to the body. We have the somatic nervous system, which is the voluntary part of our system, and this transmits signals to the voluntary muscles, allowing us to walk, run, and all those other voluntary activities. Then we have the anatomic nervous system, and this controls the body's involuntary muscles, such as those muscles in, or I should say those muscles that aid with digestion, as well as constricting our blood vessels. Now we have two types of nerves. We have sensory nerves and motor nerves. Sensory nerves carries information from the body to the CNS. Motor nerves carry information from the CNS to the muscles. There are two cranial nerves which you should be familiar with, and that is the third cranial nerve, which is the ocular nerve, and the tenth cranial nerve, which is the vagus nerve, and we'll talk more about those in later podcasts. Anatomy and physiology of the integumentary system, otherwise known as our skin. Physiology. The skin is the largest organ of the body. It's designed to protect the body, regulate body temperature, and transmit signals to the brain about the environment. Now let's talk about the anatomy of our system. On the outermost layer is the epidermis, and this is considered the superficial area. It's made up of several layers of cells. There are germinal layer, which produces new cells, and the stratum corneal layer, which is the surface layer of dead cells. Next we have the dermis, which is our deep skin. This contains special structures such as our sweat glands, sebaceous glands, hair follicles, blood vessels, and mucous membranes. Then we have our subcutaneous tissue. The subcutaneous tissue has fats and other smaller tissues that you'll become more familiar with during your trauma lecture. The anatomy and physiology of our gastrointestinal system. Physiology of the gastrointestinal system. Digestion is a chemical process. Enzymes are added to food by the salivary glands, stomach, liver, pancreas, and intestines. This process converts food into sugars, fatty acids, and amino acids. The anatomy of the gastrointestinal system. Abdomen. The abdomen contains the major organs of digestion and excretion. It's broken up into four quadrants. We have the right upper quadrant, left upper quadrant, right lower quadrant, and the left lower quadrant. The right upper quadrant contains the liver, gallbladder, and portion of the colon. The left upper quadrant contains the stomach, spleen, and a portion of the colon. The right lower quadrant contains the intestines, specifically the cecum and ascending colon. The left lower quadrant contains the descending and sigmoid portions of the colon, the small intestine, pancreas, large intestine, urinary bladder lie in more than one quadrant. Mouth. The mouth consists of lips, cheeks, gums, teeth, and the tongue, as well as the salivary glands. Oral pharynx. 
This is a tubular structure extending from the back of the mouth to the esophagus and trachea. Esophagus. This is the collapsible tube which extends from the end of the pharynx to the stomach. Stomach is a hollow organ in the lower upper quadrant, food digestion, and moves food to bowels. Pancreas. The pancreas is a flat, solid organ found behind the liver and stomach. There's two portions, the exocrine and endocrine system. The exocrine secretes pancreatic juice that aids in digestion of fats, starches, and proteins. The endocrine system has the islets of Langerhans, which produces insulin and glucagon. Liver. The liver is a large, solid organ found beneath the diaphragm in the right upper quadrant, which extends into the left upper quadrant. It filters harmful substances. It produces factors which aid blood clotting and plasma production. It stores sugars and starch for immediate energy use and produces bile for digestion. Small intestine. Small intestine is a hollow organ of the abdomen, produces enzymes and mucus for digestion, consists of the duodenum, jejunium, and ileum. Large intestine. The large intestine is a hollow organ of the abdomen. It includes the cecum, colon, and rectum. Major function is to absorb the last 5 to 10 percent of digested food and water from the intestine to form solid stools. Appendix. The appendix is a small long tube that opens into the cecum in the right lower quadrant. It's responsible for appendicitis. Rectum. The rectum is a hollow organ at the end of the colon which can hold quantities of feces. It ends at the anus. The anatomy and physiology of the lymphatic system. The lymphatic system consists of the spleen, lymph nodes, lymph, lymph vessels, and the thymus gland. It supports the circulatory and immune system. Lymph is a thin, straw-colored fluid which carries oxygen, nutrients, and hormones to the cells. Also carries away waste products of metabolism from the cells. The lymph vessels are a network that extends throughout the body that works as an auxiliary to the circulatory system. Lymph nodes are tiny oval-shaped structures that filter lymph, helps the body to filter toxins. The anatomy and physiology of the endocrine system. The endocrine system is a complex control system that integrates many body functions. The endocrine glands. These release hormones directly into the bloodstream. Each gland produces one or more hormones. Each hormone has a specific effect on an organ, tissue, or process. Brain controls the release of hormones through a controlled communication system which uses primary and secondary feedback loops to keep the body balanced. Disease and deficiencies in hormones can cause the disease process. One disease is diabetes. The anatomy and physiology of the urinary system. The urinary system controls the discharge of certain waste materials which have been filtered from the blood by the kidneys. The functions include control fluid balance in the body, filter and eliminate waste, control the pH balance. Now kidneys, these are solid organs which lie in their own space known as the retroperitoneal space. They are responsible for filtering toxic waste from the blood. They also control the balance of water and salt in the body. 
the anatomy and physiology of the genital system. The genital system is responsible for reproduction. The male reproductive system lies outside the pelvic cavity. It consists of testicles, the epididymis, the vasodeferentia, the prostate gland, seminal vesicles, and the penis. The female reproductive system is contained within the pelvic cavity and it consists of the ovaries, fallopian tubes, uterus, cervix, and vagina. Life support chain. Cells are the very foundation of all life. All cells require oxygen, nutrients, and the removal of waste. Cells receive their supplies from both the circulatory and respiratory system. If anything disrupts the supply chain, cells will die. Metabolism. Oxygen is used to convert nutrients into chemical energy. Adenosine triphosphate, ATP, is used to store energy. Anaerobic metabolism uses oxygen. Anaerobic metabolism takes place when CO2 is limited. Diffusion moves oxygen, waste, and nutrients. Pathophysiology. Pathophysiology is a study of functional changes of the body as it reacts to disease. Respiratory compromise. Respiratory compromise is the inability to move gas effectively. Reasons could be hypoxia, which is decreased level of oxygen in the body, hypercarbia, which is an elevated level of CO2 in the body, or ventilation slash respiratory impairment. Effects of respiratory compromise. O2 levels fall, CO2 levels will rise. When the brain detects rising CO2 levels, it will increase the respiratory rate to compensate. If increased respiratory rate does not work, the blood will become acidic. If blood O2 levels continue to fall, this will cause the brain to further attempt to compensate. Shock. There is a complete shock lecture podcast. However, here is an abbreviated definition of shock. Shock is a condition in which the body, organs, and tissues have inadequate flow of oxygenated blood. Anaerobic metabolism occurs when there is little oxygen, which produces lactic acid. Lactic acid is painful and leaves the body slowly, unlike carbonic acid, which is acid produced with aerobic metabolism. As shock continues and anaerobic metabolism takes place, metabolic acidosis ensures the increase of carbon dioxide in the blood. Shock will lead to decreased blood pressure, which the baroreceptors will detect, causing the release of epi and norepinephrine. Heart rate will increase and beat more forcibly and blood vessels will constrict to try and maintain the blood pressure of the body. Last, fluid moves from the intestines to the capillaries. Cellular metabolism impairment equals the inability to properly use oxygen and glucose. One more time. Cellular metabolism impairment equals inability to properly use oxygen and glucose. All right, let's talk a little bit more about anaerobic metabolism. Anaerobic metabolism begins when the body has inadequate O2 for energy production. Anaerobic metabolism can result in metabolic acidosis. Anaerobic metabolism uses more energy than when the body is using glucose for fuel.
the body has a decreased ability to carry oxygen, which further decreases the functionality of O2 in the cells. Brain cells cannot use alternate fuel, so they will begin to die if there is no glucose for fuel. Long-term anaerobic metabolism could lead to permanent cellular damage. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, whatever podcast service you're using, if you're able to leave feedback, please do so as it will help other people to find this podcast. And definitely let your fellow students know about this podcast. Don't forget, too, you can have access to exclusive content by joining and supporting this podcast through podcast memberships. And you can find that information either in the description down below or visiting us at thepublicsafetyguru.com. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for all your support. Thank you for listening and happy EMTing.